Please turn with me now to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19 and beginning in verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem. And because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore he said, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him, and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was, that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants, to whom he had given the money, to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. And came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here's your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. They said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you are no idol, you are no false god, you are no cartoon figure that man has projected in his wickedness and in his selfishness and in his hatred of God, the God that he would wish to reign. But no, Lord, you are the true God who does reign, the one God who exists and has spoken to us. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we would truly receive these words in faith and in joy and in worship, that you would open our hearts supernaturally, indeed open my mouth that I might declare these things truthfully and clearly, and, Lord, that we would profit from them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We come now to this next section in Luke chapter 19. It is a long parable that we find from verses 11 to 27. Now, what do we call this parable? We have some that we 
have famous names for, maybe the parable of the prodigal son or something like that. This one's a little less well-known, and most Bibles maybe give it a title of the parable of the ten minas or something like that. However, to focus on the ten minas would be to neglect the fact that there are actually two very significant storylines going on in the course of the, of the parable. And if you give it that name, then you're focusing exclusively on that aspect of it, of what's happening with the servants and the minas, rather than the other. And so for that, uh, we're going to actually be uh, preaching two different sermons. One today, and Lord willing, one next time. Because these are the two different stories. One that's dealing with his servants, that'll be next week, next time, and one dealing this morning with the citizens, the citizens. Okay? Now, last time we saw yet another sinner receiving grace from Christ, and we asked the question, when will we ever find the exception? When will we ever find a, a sinner who does not find mercy? Well, in those very basic terms, those unqualified terms, the day has come. The day has come. There are sinners here who find no mercy from Christ in this passage, but only strict justice being executed upon their rebellious heads. But let us consider the circumstances. Now, the context is in verse 11. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. That's why he had to tell the parable. They're on their way to Jerusalem, the place where kings are being crowned, the places where they're they're expecting, his disciples are expecting that he would be made king, and he's on their way there, and they're expecting for it to happen right away. Now, let me say that Christ's kingdom is, is coming quickly, but it's not immediate. And for that reason, he has to change their minds. No, no one really in the course of our story thus far has really gotten the nature and the timeline of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Uh, Not the people generally, and certainly not even the disciples of all things. They kept on getting it wrong. They think that they're going to be the covenant ministers of this new administration. They think that they're, they're about to receive their good things right then, when in fact Jesus has some work for them to do in the time between when he leaves and when he comes back. But even more so with the people. The Jewish people represented by their leaders have heard Jesus speak about his kingdom, but they reject it like they reject him. And they've been plotting to get rid of him. And they think that when they do get rid of him, that that's going to be the end of that. And that whole idea of him reigning over them. Well, they're very mistaken. Both of them are mistaken. And Jesus has to explain that to them. But today, let's consider the message to the unbelieving people, to the citizens of the kingdom. And this title is Christ and the Rebellious Citizens. And we have three points this morning. First, the nobleman is due a kingdom. Second, the rebellious citizens send a delegation. And third, the king executes judgment. The nobleman is due a kingdom. The rebellious citizens send a delegation. The king executes judgment. So first, the nobleman is due a kingdom. In verse 11, Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore he said, A certain nobleman 
went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Now, some things to consider. First of all, again, immediately. The main purpose of this parable is to show us that although Christ is coming quickly, he was not coming immediately. And to explain the applications of that for us. Now, he is described, Christ is obviously this nobleman. He's obviously the one who is coming to receive a kingdom. And he's being described in this word nobleman. That's more literally well-born or high-born. It's actually the word that we have the, word, the, the name Eugene from or Eugenie. It means high-born. And Christ is certainly that. He is indeed high-born. He was in the beginning with God and was God and is God. He is described as the firstborn over all creation. He is certainly the once and coming king. Yet he was at that moment incognito. Right? There is the idea of, of, of kings in the olden times walking around the people uh, in, in ordinary dress so they could not be recognized. And so it was with Christ. He did not look it outwardly. He didn't look like the king that he was. He was, in the language of the catechism, in the estate of humiliation. And sadly, some people let that fool them. And therefore, they are so free in the rejection of him. But soon enough, he would realize the destiny to which he was born. And this nobleman went into a far country. He was about to die. He was about to rise again the third day and to be ascended on high. And the far country was exactly what he's been telling them that he's going to. They don't receive it every time he says that he's going. They don't expect, they don't expect this. They think that he's going to immediately reign there in Jerusalem. He has to explain, no, he's, he's going to his father in heaven. He's not going to Jerusalem to receive the kingdom at that moment. He is going to the far country of heaven. That is his destination for the time being. And he's going, again, to receive a kingdom. Now, he's receiving a kingdom passively because he, he had not appointed this for himself. But someone else had appointed it for him. And he is going to receive the kingdom at his hand. Who is that? Well, it's the Father, isn't it? This is exactly what is described in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore God, speaking of the Father, therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow, both of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beautiful picture, isn't it, then? It's all to the glory of God the Father to bestow the kingdom upon God the Son. And this is the nature and is also the timeline of the kingdom because it was not then that he received his kingdom there in Jerusalem. Rather, it was that he received his kingdom from the hand of the Father in heaven. And he will come later to return. He will come to return. We've said that Jesus needed to, to correct those who were thinking that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. It didn't appear immediately. There is this time delay. But after that, he will return. Okay? So there are basically those who are thinking there's no delay at all. The disciples and they're wrong. And then there are those who are hoping that the delay is forever. And he'll never return. The people. And, and they're wrong as well. Because he will certainly return. He will not remain in that far country forever. And that brings us to our second point. Okay? 
So first, there was the nobleman is due a kingdom. And secondly, the rebellious citizens send a delegation. In verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Now, these are his citizens. That's what they are. Okay? They were born in this place. They owed their allegiance to their rightful king. And so it is with all the people of this world. Okay? If you live in this world, if you exist, you are created by God. You're upheld by God. You are supplied by God. If you have anything on you now, any clothing, any objects, any money, God gave that to you. Any house, any car, anything at all. God has given that to you. You are created by God. You are upheld by God moment by moment. You are supplied by God, and you are morally accountable to God. All the people of the world, they are accountable to God. They should worship because they were created to worship the living God. They should obey him because they are his creatures, certainly morally accountable to him. They should worship, and beyond that, They should worship and obey the one whom he has set over them, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, So these citizens, they owe their allegiance indeed to the one who would be king. Now these citizens, unfortunately, they hated him. Now we don't have any suggestion as to any cause, any sufficient cause, any good reason for why they might hate him. There's no hint of that because there is no reason for these citizens to hate their king. There's no reason at all. And there's no good reason why the people of this world hate the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet they do. They do. John 15, 23. Speaking to those, speaking in a, to a, a group of people who clearly had expressed their hatred for him. He says, he who hates me, by the way, hates my father also. There's always this one-to-one correlation between whatever the father's situation is, the son, and whatever the situation of the son is the father. Whatever attitude you display to the son, you're also displaying to the father. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law, They hated me without a cause. These citizens hated him without a cause. They had every reason to obey him, every uh, reason, in fact, to love him and to serve him, but no, they hated him. And to add to it, they acted upon this hatred by sending a delegation. Now, we're not exactly sure why they imagined, what they imagined this would do, what this would do at all, but it seems that in this parable there is some, the, the, the one who has made, let's say the emperor perhaps, who has power to grant the kingdom and they're sending a delegation to him to try to prevent it, hoping to prevent him from becoming king. And the words of the delegation are, we will not have this man to reign over us. Now, Jesus has just cut through all of, of the the uh, meaningless words that have been spoken up to this point, all the debate and all the discussion that has been going on with the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jewish people, all their objections, which they come in the dress of some reasonable thing. We would believe in you, Lord, but you have not sufficiently demonstrated your divinity, and we cannot. Now, he's just cut through it and 
Let me, let me explain your situation. I'll just, I'll just tell you, we can, we can cut to the chase here. You don't want me to reign over you, do you? And that's their reality. Deep down, they knew who Jesus was. His words and his works were very, very clear. But they, like all unregenerate mankind, they hated him. And they did not want him to reign over them. And so they send a delegation to prevent him. Of course, that's a nice way of pointing to the fact they're going to send a delegation to kill Jesus, actually, because they don't want him to reign over him. You're going to send a delegation to Pilate in this case. And they say, even as, do you, do you want, Je- shall I return to you, Jesus, your king, or do you want this, this terrorist, Barabbas? And they could say, we don't want Jesus. He's not our king. Give us Barabbas! the terrorists, but we will not have this man to reign over him, and I want... What do you want me to do with him, then? You know what they say? Crucify him. Crucify him. That's what we want you to do with him. That's the delegation. Well, the nobleman was due a kingdom, but the rebellious citizens sent a delegation. Thirdly, the just king executes judgment. Verse 15, and so it was when he returned, having received the kingdom, as he's now received the kingdom, he is now the king, and he shall return to his land and to his people. And the question is, what is he going to do? What is he going to do? Well, first it seems he's going to settle accounts with his servants and reward them accordingly. That's the story then for us next week. He's going to settle accounts with his servants. But then in verse 27, But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Notice in passing that this is explicitly and intentionally done in Christ's presence. This is the honor and glory of kings to do this, to execute judgment personally upon their enemies. Just like it says in Revelation 14.10. He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So we should not, so we should need not listen to those who teach that punishment is in hell is only about being away from the presence of God. You're being separated from the presence of God. That's the only problem with you. You're being separated from the presence of God. No, no, the problem is precisely you're not separated from the presence of the wrathful God. There is no escape from the presence of the wrathful God executing his vengeance upon you forever and ever and ever. That's the problem with hell. No escape from the presence of God and his wrath. But mainly, we have finally come to a place where there is no mercy. We kept looking for it, and it, it seemed like it didn't even exist. But now, from the lips of Jesus Christ himself, he is describing a time and a place and a situation in which there is no mercy whatsoever. When is the time? This is crucial. 
is not in the day of salvation as it is now, as it was when all these people came to him, no matter what their problem was, no matter how much of a sinner they they were. Not that day. As it remains until the end of the world, the day of of salvation. No, no, it's, it's the day when Christ returns. Very different situation. One minute, 30 seconds, one second before Christ returns, any sinner who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, we have every warrant to believe, will receive mercy from him. One microsecond after his return, there will be no mercy at all. None. None. Precisely upon his return, no mercy shown, only the strictest of judgments. Now, Jesus said at his first coming in John twelve forty seven, I did not come, in this case, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But do you know he's going to save the, say the exact opposite upon his return? I've not come to save the world, but to judge the world. It'd be very, very different at that point, as he comes to judge the living and the dead. And so the time is, is very, very important. And so also, you're saying, well, I'm saying, here's the circumstances in which people are not finding mercy. And the answer is, upon his return, after the day of salvation is finished. So also is important the mode of approach, because the question is, did they come asking for mercy? No, no, no. They, they could have sent a delegation after him saying, Lord, have mercy. They could have done that. Instead, they send a delegation saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. They're not asking for mercy, and they shall certainly, in the day of mercy, and whether they ask for it or not, in the day of wrath, they will not receive it. They did not receive mercy because they did not ask for it in the time of mercy. And therefore, they receive strict judgment. The just king will execute judgment upon them. Well, let's consider the applications of this very dreadful, in the right sense of it. Not something that's wrong, not something that is immoral, but something that is truly dreadful, as is thoughts of Christ's judgment well, I speak to the, the unsaved, those who have not put their faith in Christ. You need to understand that you are Christ's enemy. That's what you are. You are Christ's enemy. Matthew Henry says, Those who will not have Christ to reign over them shall be reputed and dealt with as his enemies. We are ready to think that none are Christ's enemies but persecutors of Christianity, or scoffers at least. But you see that those will be accounted so that dislike the terms of salvation will not submit to Christ's joke, what will be, but will be their own masters. Okay? So if you have in your mind that the only enemies of Christ are the active persecutors of some religion, you're quite mistaken. Actually, if Christ is not now reigning over you, as he ought to be, you are an enemy of Christ. That's what this, what this passage proclaims, and he makes very clear that those who say, now I will not have this man to reign over me, he says, these enemies, bring those enemies of mine before me, 
and I will deal with them. But you know, the thing is, so if you said, I had no idea that I was Christ's enemy. I just thought I was agnostic or something like that. No, you're an enemy of Christ. But you need not remain this way. You don't have to stay that way. Some may say the whole church here and in all places and in all times is full of ex-enemies of Christ. You know, if we were some sort of military organization, perhaps we'd wear various things on our uniforms to describe where we have been and where we're going and all the rest of it. And most of us would have a tag saying ex-enemy of Christ. You don't have to remain in this situation. In fact, I would urge you to take the good advice from Psalm 2. Do you remember that? We read it. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? That's exactly what these people are doing. They're plotting a vain thing. They are plotting the overthrow of Christ. They're plotting some way in which they will not have to submit to him. They're plotting a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from it. Well, it's not going to work. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. And he explains, I have set this king on my holy hill Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son today I have begotten of you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now here's the wisdom. Now here's the counsel. Here's my counsel to you as well. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Be instructed, all those who set yourselves up as enemies against the Lord. Be wise. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Isn't that wonderful advice? He's saying, I know your hearts. I know you rebel against me. But it's not going to work. But here's my counsel. Kiss the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in faith. Receive him. Don't make him your enemy. Receive him in faith. And he says, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. That's the gospel. It's true. Be blessed eternally. That's the difference. That's the difference between him coming to you as an enemy or him coming as a friend to reward you and indeed to put you in a position in his kingdom. Well, secondly, to Christians, I must remind us all that he is both Savior and Lord. He is both of those things. To have Christ means that he is also your Lord. There is no middle ground. There have been not so long in the the evangelical church, there's this debate over, can you have Christ as, as Savior, not as Lord, you know, and so forth. Well, you meet somebody who, who lives just like the world, indistinguishably from them, and you say, you, you need to get saved, brother, and, and they say, oh, I have been saved. Christ is my Savior. He's just not my Lord. Uh, well, that, it's impossible. That's not the way it works. Okay? Christ defines those who are saved as those whom he's reigning over. Christ describes his enemies as those whom he's not reigning over. Okay? So if Christ is not your Lord, he is certainly not your Savior. He is your judge. 
Okay, so for all of us then who are believers, we must remind ourselves that we cannot receive from Christ's hand salvation and not also his lordship. Right? We must obey him. Whatever he says, we obey. That it's it's very simple. If you love me, he says, keep my commandments. And that is what we should do, and we should not be under any illusions along those lines. We we should wake up every day, not with the mentality of I'm glad that I'm saved, therefore I can do whatever I want to do. We wake up every day with, we have been bought by a price, a heavy price. We belong doubly, if not triply, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should certainly, and we are bound to obey his commandments. He is your Lord. Obey him. Thirdly, I'd also speak just in more general terms about our attitudes towards authority. Because we live in a time that perhaps unprecedented in the history of the world, despises authority. I can't immediately think of a good precedent for the way that our current society thinks of authority. Uh, We trample it underfoot. Now, look, the, the world has to have authority, but it just kind of pretends that it doesn't. Right, it, the the message that is constantly being promoted in the media and so forth, and even what is being taught in many schools, is that all authority is bad. Everyone's on exactly the same level, and and all the rest of it a kind of false egalitarianism. But the world yet carries on in its way. On the one hand, acting like no one's in charge, but actually, people are definitely in charge. And if anything, that's even more dangerous. But anyways, the point is, the, the attitude in people's hearts, especially young people's hearts, is to despise authority. Well, let that not be said of God's people, okay? Let us not be rebels in our hearts, because God has set his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father has set the Son on the throne. There's some people who don't like it. They would say, well, we'll serve God But not this Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want him to reign over us. And there are some people who maybe say, well, okay, I'll I'll listen to Christ. But I won't listen to my husband. They say, in their words and in their deeds, I will not have this man to reign over me. Maybe their children. They say, I will not have these parents to reign over me. Or there are people who will not have this elder this minister to reign over me. Brothers and sisters, the same God who has set Christ over the whole world has also set these people, these men in authority over you. And we should submit. We should receive their authority. Fourthly, we should think about evangelism. Now, let me ask you a question. If we believed that the people of the world are simply a little bit ignorant, maybe, and they, uh, they, they really have nothing against Christ, they've just not really heard about him sufficiently, uh, what sort of presentation would work for them? Well, a very attractive presentation. And if we could sh- sell them the way that people sell shoes, uh, then, then people would be sold. They would say, great. I am sold on Christ. Thank you very much. And I will come to him now. But, but, 
if what we've just seen here is actually true of all of unsaved mankind, his citizens hate him, right, and will not have him to reign over them, then is that kind of presentation actually going to do us much good? And the answer is no, it won't, okay? We come certainly preaching the word of God earnestly and insistently and with great invitation and winsomely, yes. But we don't sell them on something like we sell some sort of product. We have to believe that there must be a supernatural transaction going on, that the Holy Spirit is regenerating someone who is a rebel, someone who hates Christ, and to change him into a loving subject. That's really, really important. Because we're not going to change the message because we know they don't, they're not going to like it naturally. But instead we pray. We pray in dependence knowing that it won't happen apart from the Holy Spirit. We pray persistently because Christ has said keep on praying, keep on praying. And we pray in faith, don't we? Because he knows that, we know that's the only kind of prayer that he listens to. That's the sort of evangelism we need. Understanding that apart from the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, they'll never come. But understanding also that through the power of the Holy Spirit, they shall come. And we pray in those lines. Fifthly, finally, there is the Lord's Supper laid before us. Elements of the Lord's table. And you know what this is about? Among other things, it is to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is exactly what this parable is all about. There are some people who don't understand this. And there are some people who have forgotten this. And we, as we partake, and of those who observe as well, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes because he is coming again. Let us not forget that. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you have spoken the truth to us. And though it is very much the way of mankind, rebellious mankind, to fashion for themselves idols and false gods according to their own fancy, according to their own desires, Lord, we are thankful to hear the truth, the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, though he has gone into a far country. He has received a kingdom and he will return. And when he does, the day of mercy is over. The day of salvation is done. And there will only be judgment for those who have persisted in their rebellion against him. Well, Heavenly Father, we know that such were many of us. And you have brought us to rather to love the Lord Jesus Christ and to embrace him in faith. We pray, Lord, that you would bring many others along with us. Some here, we pray. All here, we pray. And, Lord, that we ourselves would not be rebels either against Christ or against those whom you've put in authority rightly over us. And ask, Lord, that you'd grant us submissive hearts, both to your word to obey it and also to the rightful sources of authority, as long as they do not contradict clearly your word. Lord, rightly that we would evangelize, knowing that only the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit can do it, but to proclaim your word faithfully and, yes, winsomely. And Lord, help us now to proclaim the Lord's death till he come. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.